immersive audio podcast. In conversations with industry thought leaders, practitioners, artists, academics, and entrepreneurs, discussing all aspects of this rapidly evolving industry, from art, science, and business to practical insights and project case studies. We aim to inform, educate, explore, and unite the community. This episode is sponsored by Holoplot, the technology that features the award-winning X1 Matrix speaker array and integrated software that enables 3D audio beamforming and wavefield synthesis. Holoplot is pivoting the revolution in sound control that allows for a completely new way of designing and experiencing immersive audio on a large scale. To find out more, visit holoplot.com. Hello, and welcome to the Immersive Audio Podcast, episode 82, with me, your host, Monica Bowles. Oliver is out on a gig today, but I am super excited to welcome today's guest, Les Stuck. Hi there. Good to see you, Monica. Yeah, it's great to have you here. I mean, the people listening can't see you, can't see me, but I can see you, so that's that's cool. <laughs> yeah, we get to we get to have a little FaceTime here. So I'm really excited to have you on here. We met during uh, an Immersa event that I helped put together, um, one about spatial audio, and you live not too far from me, just up the road in Santa Fe. It's true, very true. So we both share a love for green chili. Am I right? <laughs> green chili and well I guess are you are you a green chili red chili or Christmas person I think Christmas is just for tourists so I'll make a decision either red or green oh and not not a combo <laughs> so you're green then that's that's going to be your decision generally speaking yeah when in doubt for those that don't know New Mexico is very much about their chilies and I think this the state question is red or green meaning which type of chili would you like on all of your food it's very good. If you come to New Mexico, you definitely have to try the chili. I'll do a little introduction, Les. Okie doke. So Les Stuck has quite an extensive background in the field of spatial audio and has been working in the field since the late 80s. Les has done spatial audio explorations with the Frankfurt Ballet, Frank Zappa, EarCam, Mills College, Cycling 74, and is now currently a senior sound technologist at Meow Wolf. Um, we're going to get way deeper into all of his background. He's been doing this for a long time and has some really exciting um, stuff to share with us, I'm sure. So, Les, again, thank you so much for being here um, and welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, we're going to just kind of dive into your background a little bit. So, mm. can you, you know, start talking a little bit about how did you first get started in spatial audio and, you know, what kind of brought you into that space to begin with. Yeah, um, it was pretty much contemporary music. Um, like once I was working at a recording studio, High Street Studios in San Francisco, and I started doing live sound for the Kronos Quartet. And they would have some pieces that were in quad. Um, then I moved to Frankfurt, Germany, and began working for the Frankfurt Ballet. And a few years later, the Ensemble Modern at which is a contemporary music ensemble. And, you know, in Europe, there's much more, or also in contemporary music, there's it's much more common to have multiple speakers in a live concert. And so most of my experience was kind of live. And after uh, working with those two groups for a while, I moved to Paris and started working at EARCOM, which is a uh, computer music research institute founded by Pierre Boulez. Uh, and there... Spatial audio is really important. 
uh, the first project I worked on was Six Channels. They have a concert hall that has variable acoustics. And um, I was involved in the initial testing of the spatializer, started building my own spatial software in Max. Yeah. Well, very cool. Um, so yeah, kind of in your bio, you've got some really interesting, um, you know, kind of background again, uh, and I'd like to just kind of get a little bit deeper into some of your experiences and, you know, kind of dive a little bit more into, you know, some of this background. Um, so Frank Zappa and the six channel microphone ring. Um, oh God. <laughs> let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. Well, you know, um, that was a very strange project. So the um, Ensemble Moderne commissioned Zappa to do a bunch of pieces and do a concert tour of uh, Europe, basically Germany and um, Austria. So we went to his studio at Joe's Garage and recorded a bunch of things. And um, at one point they came up with this idea, let's have a hula hoop with six microphones attached to it, pointing inward. So then you could kind of like put the ring over a musician's head as they were playing and move it around and it would pan in the six channel sound system. Uh, and it, you know, it required renting an extra mixer because there was two of them. So it was like 12 channels and we tested it. But unfortunately, Frank was very, very sick towards the end of his life. So he was having a great time musically, but the six channel microphone just kind of got dropped just didn't really have time, too many things going on. The concert did kind of illustrate uh, something about mixing for multi-channel concerts. So one thing I do when I set up a sound system is I um, kind of get it going, and then I go to the worst seats in the house, like typically front row left or highest balcony, far, far corner, and make sure that it, the sound is gonna work in those positions. And it may not be the best, but at least so you can kind of hear the music. So the, um, the engineer for Zappa was very good, but I don't think he had ever mixed spatial sound before. So he basically had all the mics in the orchestra, had his mixer set up in the center of the orchestra seating, and um, decided, oh, I'll put the horns in the back and the strings on the right. Did this kind of like early Beatles extreme panning. So I'm sure it sounded kind of cool where he was sitting. All I could hear was horns when I went up into the balcony. So... Um, that's that's one problem that that people encounter is is getting the evenness of sound. I think nowadays with uh, line arrays you can get a much better coverage. But um, when I started working with the Frankfurt Ballet, I took this technique with me, and I realized that sitting in the front row, you have these stereo speakers left and right, and not even necessarily pointed at you. So you get a really bad sound image, like sound is kind of behind you and the dance is in front of you. So we developed a technique where, you know, with dance, with stage monitors, you don't really need a separate speaker for each musician that has its own little mix. What you want to do is have the, the whole stage covered with sound. So we would typically set up um, two speakers upstage, two speakers downstage for the monitors. Uh, so what we ended up doing was taking those upstage speakers and making them quite big and powerful so you could hear them slightly louder than the front of house. And then we would delay the front of house. So the time zero was upstage. Um, if you're sitting in the front row, you would mostly hear those upstage speakers with 
the main speakers delayed. And then as far as you went into the house, you wouldn't hear them as much. Um, and the way I would test that would be go upstage center and walk downstage center and then hop down into the seating and walk. And it should be like a, a continuous stereo image as you walk uh, away from the stage. And the effect was that the dancers heard the music really well. It was They were perfectly in time. And even if you had those bad seats in the front row, the image of the sound would be on stage where the dancers were. So they, they kept using that system, and I think they still do. That was kind of fun. Another thing we discovered, a lot of the touring we did was either in um, classical opera houses or large theaters with multiple balconies. So if the artistic ask was to have rear speakers, that becomes pretty difficult because typically um, under a balcony or between balconies is very low height and the seats go right to the corner. So you put a speaker there and that's all people can hear is that one speaker. One thing that kind of addresses that problem is to have the speaker pointed away from those audience members and reflect it off the wall. So you get some distance um, to those nearby people. So, and typically concert halls have hard walls. So that worked out pretty well. That's very cool. Yeah, no, I, I was thinking about, um, I guess when you were talking about the like microphone ring kind of going back there a little bit, I know uh, Pierre Schaefer, he kind of had like a some ring panning kind of things that he developed at one point in time. I didn't know if mm. that was, <laughs> if you knew about that or had any inspiration from that. Oh, and interesting. Using kind of like a, yeah, doing like some spatial panning with some rings. We did some, you know, rehearsals with it and it was kind of a cool effect. But it was one of those effects where you have to really focus on looking at the performers and the person moving the ring for it to really feel good uh, conceptually. Yeah. Otherwise, it just sounds like panning. Yeah. So. Yeah, I um, think I think there's the you know kind of being careful about like finding something that you think uh, would sound cool, and then like when you actually build it out, you're like, oh, that actually wasn't as cool as I thought it would be. Yeah. Yeah. I had another uh, learning about. A couple more learnings uh, in that general area. I uh, worked on a piece for the San Francisco Ballet where the composer wanted to have rhythms that were just a repeated note, kind of like an ostinato. Um, and then he had the great idea of having the, the repeated notes pan left, right. So it'd be like left, then right, then left, then right. And that would be the pattern. So if you're sitting in the center of the house, it sounds cool. But then if you're sitting all the way to the left, you only hear either the downbeat or the upbeat. So I realized that's, that really just doesn't work at all. You have to like bring it into center. Yeah. You know, the live experience is always, you know, challenging because of how different, you know, things sound depending on where you're sitting um, in the space. A lot of audio engineers end up mixing in mono. Um, although I know Lisa, you know, they're trying to kind of address, you know, being able to pan out a little bit more, you know, have more of a sweet spot. Another thing I found was, uh, you know, the typical music mixing like say for a spotify or, or it would be to have a reverb send that returns left and right and so you kind of send whatever instruments you want to have big into that and the reverb itself is static but if you do that in a, a room where people can walk around and get close to the speakers you might have something panned all the way across a room but the reverb is returning right where you're standing so it sounds really weird as a result, I would typically have one reverb per speaker, and then when the sound went to that speaker, it would pick up the reverb locally. 
actually, this had been discovered in 1971 by John Chowning when he built his first spatializer and wrote that paper. Um, so he actually would take the direct sound and the reverb, mix it into a mono signal, and then pan that so they would stick together. And that works great when you have something kind of disappearing into the distance. It, the reverb goes with it, and it feels very natural. That's very cool. There's, I mean, there's so much stuff that you learn kind of just by doing these experiments and over time and kind of what works and what doesn't work. But let's move forward a little bit and kind of talk about your next uh, kind of, you said the, kind of the next thing you got into was ear cam. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I was, the, I was a musical assistant, which is a very strange job where you work closely with a composer and kind of realize all the computer uh, and sonic things they want or they imagine and kind of make it happen in concert. Uh, that's when I really started using Max a lot. Um, and my first project was with Pierre Boulez, the piece Explosant Fixe, which had just been ported to Max. Um, that was with a six-channel sound system and um, just very simple, just azimuth panning. But I was also kind of got interested in the spatializer, which the earliest version of the spatializer, uh, I guess with, with those early computers sending a bunch of parameters for changing spatialization and position would really load down the processor. Uh, and would and the, the position of the, the virtual sound source, it was hard to make it move smoothly. So I worked with a composer um, where we built a spatializer that was purely signal-based. So you would send it a destination and a time, and, it, and every sample it would update the location. And that was like super fast. Like uh, you could pan so fast that it becomes an LFO, basically, you know. So when I started working with Cycling 74, I brought in some of those uh, signal panning tools to the uh, MSP examples. Yeah, I think one of the last um, projects I worked for IRCOM was an opera by Philippe Manoury, uh, 60th Parallel. So we thought about this problem of having the rear speakers, and this was in the uh, Théâtre du Châtelet, which is a classic opera house, uh, with those balconies. Um, so rather than trying to have, you know, rear speakers at every balcony, we came up with a system that was kind of like a, a box of speakers, a cube. So like in the front, in the proscenium, you'd have a, a stereo pair low and a stereo pair high. And then kind of midway through the house, you'd have a low left and a low right and a high left and a high right. So that from pretty much anywhere in the house, you could hear all eight speakers. And it would be a pretty good balance, you know. And that seemed to work pretty well. We used the, the signal-based panning. And um, yeah, we also did that in Berkeley. I think that's the only spatial thing I did there. And then I guess you, you, then you worked at Mills College for a while. Yeah, I was a technical director for the music department. And again, doing all kinds of weird spatial requests for students and faculty. Pretty interesting learning experience. Also, I helped upgrade the concert hall in terms of acoustics and also the sound system. So we ended up having a seven-channel sound system, uh, left, right, front, left, right, mid, left, right, rear, 
and then a, a speaker directly overhead, which was really fun. Um, I mean, an overhead speaker is something you just can't imitate. You have to have a physical speaker up there. I encountered another thing. A, a lot of times when people spatialize sound, they want to use phantom images. So like, you know, if you have, let's say, a stereo mix, you can put the sound left or right. If you put it equally in both speakers, obviously it's going to be in the middle, but it changes radically. I mean, instead of being a point sound, it becomes a very spread part sound. And if you happen to be sitting in the left side of the room, it's going to sound like it's coming from the left. So it's a very unstable image. It really only works best if the sound is moving. So I tried to convey this to the students, and I built a spatializer uh, specifically for the Mills Concert Hall um, with the idea that you would give it spatial commands either in Max or in Ableton, and it would, from wherever the sound was, it would move to a given speaker over a period of time. So once it stopped moving, it would be at the speaker, and there, you wouldn't have this phantom image problem. But while it was moving, you could have it kind of have any sort of path. Yeah, I think it's an interesting effect. If you, if you try to use phantom panning, even though it may sound pretty good at the mixing position, it's pretty fuzzy and weird if you're off to the side. But if you do put sounds only in the speaker, like in one speaker at a time, the sound is kind of localized at that speaker in space. And so the spatial mix becomes more of a... Uh, almost like a piece of sculpture, audio sculpture. Even if you're sitting in a, in a weird seat, like in the back, you can still perceive that there's this large audio object that uh, you're perceiving from your angle, as opposed to some sort of idealized spatial path. Kind of the argument for the like high-resolution arrays where you just have tons and tons of speakers. Like at the Cube, they have the 140-channel speaker array, and that's kind of the point of it is, you know, being able to have, you know, the ability to kind of place sound, you know, in the speaker, kind of where it's coming from. Oh yeah, that's ideal. Yeah, and and to some extent, we we can do that at Meow Wolf. In certain cases, we can have lots of speakers. But um, if you're touring, that's really hard to pull off. Yeah, the question of kind of how do you, um, yeah, be able to create you know these algorithms so that they can work for all kinds of positions, or you know, and not just have a sweet spot. Which I think, yeah, the phantom imaging approaches, which, I mean, ambisonics is also kind of, you know, a part of that um, world, you know, creates kind of those, yeah, very kind of um, local, yeah, it depends really where you are in the space, what kind of experience you're getting. Yeah, especially ambisonics, um, you really have to be kind of in a sweet spot to get those phase signals to add up right. I've always liked kind of looking at, you know, like the way that you, you know, the room that you're working in and kind of how to or when you're composing a piece or you're making a piece of music, you know, that you know you're going to kind of be touring in these ways is, you know, kind of just embracing the limitations of the technology in that sense and making sure that, like, the way that you're designing the composition, you know, it it can't, it, does, it doesn't matter, like, where you are and it's okay for it to have a different experience depending on where you are in the space. And that's one of my favorite approaches to kind of working with, you know, kind of, that challenge of, you know, how do you create a live experience with spatial audio and, you know, how do you um, it's the best. embrace the limitations of the technology, especially when you're trying to kind of create these large kind of, um, you know, experiences for people. And I think part of being in a space and being able to like move around a space and change where you are and have your experience of that piece change, I think can be a really 
you know, cool element to play with as a composer when you're working in, you know, kind of spatial audio environments. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of interesting to see the way uh, Dolby Atmos works. Now, there is the basic idea is that you do a mix in, let's say, at least 7.1 or preferably far more speakers. And then Dolby will remix that for any given speaker configuration. Two approaches it has, as you probably know, you kind of divide the musical instruments into either a bed that's pretty static or a sound object that moves around. Mm -hmm. um, and so you have to compose that way. You know, you maybe put the rhythm tracks in the bed and maybe strange background noises can move around and be kind of magical. But even in that case, um, I think Adobe Atmos plugin has a way to make speakers sticky so that like when you pan close to a speaker, it goes right to the speaker as a way of creating a solid image. And I think mm. that happens even when you render it out for a different uh, speaker array. But just an example of how organizing your music to work with spatialization is probably the best approach, right? Yeah. And well, thinking about, you know, as a composer working on a composition for spatial audio um, kind of experience, it's, you know, space is part of that composition and it's another dimension that you're working with and embracing it as a dimension of your composition and not just trying to create, you know, take a, a mix that, you know, or take a kind of, uh, I, I'm always kind of harping on that, I guess. It's, you know, you want to take something that's, you know, you want to compose for spatial audio, you want to mix for spatial audio, you even want to record for spatial audio and continuously think about it in mind as you're creating for that, for space and not just taking something that was created for stereo and trying to make it work in a spatial audio environment. Oh, you're absolutely right. I think there's some music that works better than others, but, you know. You, you know, what's kind of funny is the... Uh the Dolby Atmos that's in Apple Music now, if you have mm. the AirPods, because kind of depending on where you're facing in the room, you're going to hear a different mix just because they want to create, the, they're taking basically a spatial, I mean, a stereo track and trying to give it a spatial quality. And it's, um, sometimes it's nice, but sometimes it's just kind of weird. You're like, wait, which, which angle do I face to get the right mix? <laughs> Definitely. All right. So the last the last kind of uh, item in your background that I want to talk about is Max MSP and Cycling 74. So I know you talked a lot about, you know, working with Max MSP at EarCam and kind of, you know, taking that forward and kind of your other, um, you know, positions that you held. And so then you spent some time actually working, you know, in directly with Cycling 74. So yeah, what was that like? Well, there is a period of time at EarCom where... Um uh, Miller Puckett, who invented Max, and David Zicarelli, who runs Cycling 74, shared an office. And we had a bunch of other Americans who played in kind of a blues band in Paris. And uh, we started developing this old uh, Earcom version of Max, which ev eventually became PD. And so this 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 audio Max ran on a, um, a particular DSP workstation card that was very expensive and kind of hard to get. When faster computers came, when when there were faster Mac computers, right about the time that Zicarelli left Earcom, uh, Macintosh computers became fast enough to process audio in real time, and he developed a library called MSP and started the Cycling 74 company. At that time, I was one of the few people around who had programmed audio in Macs, so he hired me as... Um, 
kind of a evangelist and to make examples and things. So my role with cycling was pretty much uh, making examples, tutorials, thinking about the beginner experience um, and doing some marketing videos. I think the most interesting spatial audio experience I had was I realized I'd made a a very simple four-channel spatializer early on in the example program, and I realized at a point that uh, John Chowning's 1971 paper was going to have its 50th anniversary in 2021. So um, I contacted him, and we decided to update that spatializer to be compatible with his paper so that you could actually read his paper and listen to what, what it sounded like back in the day. Uh, had different panning algorithms, um, and it had this technique for panning a reverb with the sound. And actually, also, when you put the, the virtual sound object in space and you move it, you had the option of having that produce a Doppler effect. So he made a, it was a pretty realistic thing. It was really wonderful working with him and upgrading that. Well, as an avid Max user and someone who has you know, really <laughs> use that a lot in their practice. It's a, it's such an amazing tool. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think I knew about, about your background there helping build tutorial documents. Um, maybe I've used some of those. The help, the help info in Max is definitely really great. And the way that it kind of works through being able to have that kind of interactive interface for learning and, you know, exploring and figuring out how you patch things together and how things work um, is really cool. And, yeah, the spatial audio kind of components that it has. Um, it, you, yeah, it was a tool that allowed you to do all this stuff before, you know, all before Dolby came out with Dolby Atmos or, you know, any of these companies kind of jumped on developing plugins. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you see a Max uh, example with the less than sign on it, that's, that's one that I made. Awesome. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to keep my eye out now as I uh, <laughs> building and digging into tutorials because you, you still do that you, you, no matter how, how long you've worked with it. <laughs> that's right. That's right. And, and one of the most exciting developments with Max is making Max for Live and, and integrating it with Ableton Live, which um, we use a lot at Meow Wolf, and I've used it in some of my performances um, and the great thing about that is you can have your spatial controls just built in and kind of wedded to the musical sounds of the different instruments. I think my, my favorite development, which is a little bit old news now, but was the MC objects. Um, oh, yeah. And being able to just route, I think, 1,024 channels through one patch cable instead of, you know, having to do all of the kind of individual patching of all of the channels you're trying to work with and Patching like a hundred, you know, either or doing, a, you know, having to program some like, you know, stuff to get everything to patch. When you're working with 140 channels, it's a lot of patching. <laughs> it ends up being like knitting, you know. Like, <laughs> so yeah, MC is a huge improvement yeah. for sure. And uh, and then adding MC plug in, plug out to Max for Live means you can really do some elaborate spatialization in Ableton, which is kind of my favorite way to do it nowadays. I mean, I've built so many spatializers and different panners that I tend to build a spatializer unique for the project. Mm 
sure we can get a little bit more into that then. So I think that's a good segue. So again, quite an extensive background. I feel like there's so much we could continue talking about in all of that space. Um, but let's move into our hot topic um, for today, which is interactive spatial sound installations. Okay. Um, so currently you work at Meow Wolf. Mm -hmm. um, and so would you mind explaining what Meow Wolf is for those who might not know? And then also kind of what your role is within the company and what you do there? Yeah, that is the most difficult question you've asked so far. It's such a weird place, but um, hmm. You know, there was this group of outsider artists living in Santa Fe and they would get together and put together art exhibits and rent warehouses and stuff. And I think at some point, you know how artists have a hard time agreeing on things because we all have our individual ways of doing things. I think they did, they kind of made a decision that, okay, you have your own room, do your thing, and I'll have my room and I'll do my thing. And kind of the result of that was this building with a bunch of different rooms and every room you go into is something different. Um, completely different aesthetic and concept. Um, and that's kind of what we do today. Um, it, it's a physical space. We've built one. There's one in Santa Fe that I didn't work on, one in Las Vegas, Nevada, one in Denver, and we just opened one in near Dallas, Texas, in Grapevine. And it's just like one room fades into another and creates some challenges for audio in the sense that you can hear the music of one room in while you're in the other room. So sort of to fix that problem, all the music is in a compatible key, like different modes of, of C, for example. And um, the tempos are, are beat synced when appropriate so that you get kind of a nice crossfade when you go between rooms. I was hired as a sound technologist I think mostly because of my uh, Max experience. And I tend to specialize on interactive um, Max environments where I'll, I'll do the audio in Max and maybe the state machine. And then I'll work with um, maybe a video or lighting designer using Touch Designer. And we'll have some sort of interface hardware and come up with something that, that kind of works. Um, the other thing, when I first started working at yeah, well, if I realized that nobody was thinking about acoustics, which is like super important. Like we can fantasize all day about spatial audio, but if the acoustics is bad, it just all goes to hell. Um, so I began to think about the acoustics of different spaces, try to get some treatment, try to get some doors if possible. Um, and now I think we're in a much better place. We actually have acousticians measure and design things and for our future exhibits is coming along a lot better. But yeah, those are the two main things I work in here. Uh, there's sort of two types of spatial audio we have. One is like you're saying, having lots of speakers. So if we can get a density, appropriate density of speakers, we can, uh, Eric Keep made a really nice spatializer for just kind of doing object-based panning, moving the sound through the space that's built in Max for Live. Uh, there's also diegetic sound where you have some sort of object or sculpture that's supposed to be making the sound itself. So you have to kind of plant a speaker in there. Um, and oftentimes it'll be a combination of the two. Uh, for example, a project I recently did in Grapevine, Texas, there are these little mushrooms attached to the side of a tree and you can hit the mushrooms and, and play music and they'll play music back. 
So each side of the tree has a particular algorithm for re responding. And um, put in a little bit of reverb so that when you hit one mushroom, the, its reverb appears in that whole group. So it kind of makes it into one little sonic space. So, that, so a lot of the work we do is, is trying to create this magic of sound just appearing without any obvious source. And so, yeah, can you get into then a little bit deeper into, yeah, like how do you approach designing interactive spatial installations and what kinds of tools and algorithms do you use? How do you find this different from working with spatial audio and some of the other contexts that you've worked with it? Well, one thing that's a real challenge is a lot of times we can't decide where the speakers go. So if they're going to be in this, like, visually apparent, we have to kind of hide them into sculpture behind a screen and make it look like it's not there. Or if we have it maybe above, let's say, 12, 15, 16 feet, that whole area is kind of a tech zone where everything is painted black and we can use hanging speakers. But, you know, if the speakers are 18 feet high, you're not going to get much localization. And also you, you can't really use ambisonics because it's always such an irregular array. So we tend to use the DBAP algorithm, which uh, there was an object in Max that would do that. Uh, it's also available in Earcom SPAT. So you can give just arbitrary speaker locations and give a position of a virtual object, and it'll calculate what amount of sound coming through each speaker to make it appear the object is in that location. Of course, you run into a problem that even if a sound is in one corner, if you go off to the other corner, you might hear a little bit of that sound in the speaker that's right next to you. So it's that problem you encounter everywhere. So we're now using a, a nearest neighbor algorithm that will only turn on the, let's say the first three speakers that are the loudest ones. So it, the image pretty much stays where you put it. You know, I've, yeah, the nearest neighbor algorithm, I played with that a bit and that one's always been really impressive to me as far as kind of the the way that it sounds and handles the spatialization. Yeah, right? Especially when you walk away from the intended location. It, it doesn't get all messed up by the, the uh, additional speakers. And one thing that's really, really fun to work with is the integration with Max for Live. So whether you're using Eric's spatializer that, uh, where you can kind of draw a path with an iPad of object-based panning, that becomes a clip envelope for that particular track. Or some of the spatializers I've built are the same basic principle where whatever spatial motion you create, you can record with the track. So if you're using the Ableton's session view, you can have a given track or loop or something, some little clip and have the spatialization built right into the clip where... And then if you decide to move that clip around in the composition, the spatialization goes with it. And that's, that's super handy. That's kind of the way we do everything now is that type of spatialization. Yeah, I think uh, yeah, Ableton Live kind of just, it, I mean, it's fun to be able to combine the, um, the tool, kind of just the, the DJ kind of mentality and the interactiveness that you can get out of Ableton. Um, yeah, with the spatialization. Yeah, and sometimes we'll use... Sometimes we have Ableton actually looping in the exhibition, like in, in Las Vegas. There's a couple of rooms like that. Uh, other times we'll just do the production and then render out the ch uh, one channel for each speaker. 
and load that into a, a max batch or a, a QSIS player. And so I guess like um, how interactive are some of the, um, I know some of them are interactive, some of them are more kind of rendered. And I guess when you're handling some of the more interactive pieces, like is there um, something different that you do there than, or like how do you kind of handle that? All of our sound goes through a system called QSIS, which was developed by QSC. Uh, it has like these cores that do DSP processing and then they and power amps and the speakers. Now, they also have the ability to play a sound file. So if we just have a, a background music that just loops, we can just load those files into QSIS and it'll play. And even if we render out a spatialized mix of multiple outputs, we can just load that into QSIS and it'll play. Uh, any interactive projects we'll build in Max, pretty much. You can do a certain amount of interactivity in QSIS, but the problem is you just don't have the flexibility. And when you're working with an artist, you want to be able to make changes quickly and radical changes and propose different things. So we tend to have a bunch of Mac minis as media servers and we put Macs in each one and they play through Dante into QSIS. Um, the interactive connection is basically with OSC messages. So uh, we might have um, some interactive hardware whose analog outputs go to um, a, a TNC, like a little uh, a microcontroller, and that will send OSC to Max. Uh, Max can then send OSC to Touch Designer or even to uh, a lighting console. And that's how we kind of have the interactive controls. What kind of interactivity do you um, find works kind of well in a, um, these sorts of installations? I would say the a really important part is that the hardware be robust because our exhibits get beat up really hard, right? Just thousands of people going through and smashing them and everything. Um, for example, we've done a lot with capacitive touch, which has the ability to not only be a, a button on off, but you can also detect distance. For example, in Denver, we made a thing where you could approach something and it would control a musical gesture. But then that the calibration drifts over time. And so we ended up not even using that and just making it on off. We'll use conventional switches, like very sort of robust industrial switches uh, for some things. Uh, done some work with video cameras and face recognition. In Grapevine, there's a couple of uh, uh, sinks, kitchen sinks and a bathroom sink where you have, um, you turn the handle and it creates sound and light. In that case, it's a, a magnetic sensor. Yeah. The, the mushrooms I mentioned earlier have an accelerometer built into them. So it measures the, how hard you hit it um, that, that was kind of a interesting problem to solve because we wanted people to feel the immediacy of, of hitting the mushroom and having a sound come out. So, um, but we also wanted to make it sensitive to in intensity and velocity sensitive. So what we do is the, when you hit the mushroom, the accelerometer has like a little impulse that dies out when the impulse first goes over a certain threshold, it sends a message to Max to start playing the sample of that mushroom. And then over the next, say, 100 milliseconds, 
the TNC software measures the amplitude, and so you can do the velocity sensitivity. So that information, the the intensity of, let's say, the MIDI note comes after the note has already started playing. So the note um, starts, the, the attack of the note starts pretty much full volume, played with the poly tilde object, and then we use the note message object to address each individual note in 100 milliseconds later and tell how loud it's playing. So those initial notes that people play are very immediate and very as low latency as possible. Then the response notes, the variations on what you've played, come back, and they're all quantized in time with the overall music in the room. The reason for that is we, we know a lot of people are going to be playing this at once so that we want all their musical responses to be in sync. And we've played it, they're all playing a major pentatonic scale. So it's, so no matter, no matter what people are doing on the tree, it sounds kind of harmonious and fits in with the overall sound of the room. Yeah. And so how do you handle, um, I guess, how do you handle latency then? Because that's kind of a big component of that interactivity. Yeah. Well, that was uh, little tricks like I just described where you, get the initial impulse into sound as quickly as possible, like low buffer sizes. And also using OSC with UDP is, is you know, faster than with TCP. So that OSC was definitely designed to be a low latency situation. I think, you know, latency matters much more with audio than with video or lights. So we tend to get the sensor information into Max to make the sound first and then relay the information to lights or sound and video. But yeah, it is, it is a challenge. And so kind of like how I know you had kind of an experience, you know, this kind of background in a lot of live um, contexts. And I'm kind of curious how, you know, your live experience and working in that kind of space has, you know, kind of set you up to, you know, like, handle these kinds of situations or like work within kind of the, you know, installation space. Um, and, you know, I'm sure there's some differences as well. Like, can you kind of go a little bit deeper into, you know, how you see some of your kind of like past experiences, um, either adding to and contributing to the work you're doing now, or, um, you know, kind of some of the differences that you've had to, um, you know, to work with and find different solutions for. Yeah, sure. I, I would say the the main similarity is this idea that it's really hard to create good sound for every seat in the house. You know, you really have to listen from the worst positions and and try to get those speakers balanced out. And some of the same tactics you can use live, you can also use in installation. Um, the the main difference I think is that we're building things that take years to design and build. And they have to last forever, allegedly. So uh, these designs have to be robust. They have to be really stable. And um, we have to be able to define where speakers go and how they're mounted so that architects can understand it and installers can put them in. You know, whereas if you're doing a live concert, especially if you're touring, you just kind of show up and you respond to the space. You might have done some pre-planning, but... If you have to change at the last minute, you just go ahead and do it. And all it has to do is is work great for a couple of nights and then you move on to the next place. 
What are some of the challenges you've encountered kind of that are specific to installation design? I know you were talking about acoustics and, you know, how um, that was, you know, a bit of a challenge. Definitely like to hear a little bit more about that. And then, yeah, what are some of the solutions that you've come up with to address these challenges? Well, one of the more difficult projects I recently worked on was uh, in a room with a bunch of walls that didn't go up to the ceiling. So a large room with kind of walls that went up to maybe 12 feet or something, a bunch of pendant speakers and a, um, a complete sound design that uh, some wonderful artists had, had made. Then in the middle of that, there was an interactive sculpture and I was supposed to do sound for that. So it, it used um, a video camera and face detection and it had kind of a, a video eyeball that would look at you. And so the idea was the sound, the eye was looking at you as you move in the room and the sound was tracking as you move around. Once I get there, I realize that there's a, a speaker directly above the sculpture. And then there are two speakers behind left and right. So the only way I can get any kind of left-right spatialization was to use speakers behind me, um, which is just not very convincing you could do kind of a panning from the center to the out and plus the speakers were up um i think they were 18 feet high so it was really hard, hard to get any kind of localization so I, I pretty much had to give up spatialization for that project there was a a, a a more important priority and that was that whatever sounds i came up with had to fit the overall sound design of the room and not you know work against it and the spatialization was like just a, a nice to have so what we did, we asked uh, the artists to give me samples from their and stems from their work. Uh, so I, all my sound design was using their sounds. Also, their music, Teddy and Alex, had a lot of dynamics, which is not the best thing to have when you're in a room with a bunch of people milling around and talking. You kind of want to reduce the dynamics. It's a bit like mixing for a car. But in this case, the dynamics was done. It was a fait accompli. So what I so that sound was being played from Cusis. So I asked our um, one of our Cusis designers to build me a plugin that would measure the RMS loudness of the music track and also send me the seconds of the how far you're going into the track. So I knew how loud it was and also where I was in the music. So I made, I took that RMS value and I made it control the volume of the sounds I was making. So if the music got soft, then my sounds would get soft. If the music got loud, then mine would get loud. That helped out a lot. Um, and then I used the time to follow the harmonic changes of the music to transpose and also maybe to select different sounds. So I ended up making a thing that really, you can tell it's coming from the sculpture, but it fits really well into the whole musical design. So, um, so there's an example of just having to forget spatialization. It was just too impossible and just work on the musical content. <laughs> <laughs> so sometimes it's important to just throw the spatialization away to kind of make it work for the space. Well, you know, we, you and I both love to do spatial sound and we've heard some amazing things and maybe done some good things too, but uh, it's kind of a subtle effect in general, unless you really draw people's attention to, like, say, a visual image with a sound, a lot of people don't even notice spatialization. So it's, it's important to, to keep your priorities straight, I guess. Sorry. 
not a, not a good thing to say for a spatial podcast. <laughs> I, no, I think it's great. You know, I think that's something, you know, that again is a, you know, key point of, you know, working with, uh, you know, working with spatial audio. It's a, again, it's that not everything should be spatialized and, you know, knowing what should be and how to really effectively use, you know, it as a design tool and not, you know, just a, a gimmick, mm. right? And um, not just something that's kind of a, you know, oh, well, we can do it. So why not? It, you know, you want it to have that kind of artistic value and a, a meaning and a reason and to be able to hear. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. The way that, yeah. And ha- have it add to the the composition and not necessarily just take away, you know, and not take away from it. And I think it's, you know, it's an important thing to think about when you're designing or composing or creating, you know, for space. And I think, yeah, as you said, being able to just kind of know when it's not the right tool to use, I think is also an important part of working with spatial audio. Um, and I don't don't know if it's something we've really covered too much on this podcast. So I think it's a, a good th- a conversation to bring up for sure. So I'd like to also kind of get back into some of the acoustics stuff you were talking about as well. And uh, yeah, again, it's, I think acoustics is something that a lot of, I mean, just in general is not something a lot of people think about, especially that aren't sound people. Um, But then as, you know, a sound artist or kind of sound designer, you know, and especially working in, you know, these spatial sound installations where you you maybe do get to actually kind of decide what the acoustics are going to be again i think with live you know <laughs> the venue hopefully has thought about acoustics and designed you know that with that in mind um however again as you said it's like every night is different and so you have to you know you have to kind of just um be able to uh, you know accommodate each space that you're in dependent on the 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 night and the the space and so how do you look at that though when you do have an opportunity to actually think about how the space is going to be designed and start to bring these conversations forward with the decision makers about you know thinking more seriously about acoustics and how does that kind of help in the job of creating kind of spatial experiences um, in these installations well you know as you know there are two main uh, things that affect acoustics one is transmission through walls and one is the absorption within a room. So since these rooms are all very different, we have to work really hard to isolate the rooms and deal with that transmission. We'll get a rough plan for the building and we'll go through and identify regions or groups of rooms that need to be together or isolated from others. So we'll suggest that between those two spaces, we have walls that go from floor to ceiling um, and they have really high... Uh, values of transmission loss. but And when you're talking with architects about transmission loss, they tend to focus on STC, which is a transmission loss just f- averaged over all the frequencies. And you have to make them aware that actually the t- transmission occurs at different frequencies. Like you could have uh, a wall built of two by fours and a wall built of cinder blocks and they might have the identical STC rating, but the cinder blocks is going to block bass a lot more than other frequencies. Oh, and of course, the biggest source of bleed between rooms is doors. And Meowth is kind of adverse to doors. So basically, we have to just live with that. <laughs> Try to uh, put them in hallways or something to kind of 
dampen the transmission, but basically anytime you have an opening, it's going to transmit sound. What about the HVAC systems? Is that something you all are able to kind of think about the design and limiting acoustic transmission through? You know, we haven't been able to do that in much detail. The HVAC is not as critical in our exhibits as it would be, let's say, in a sound studio. I mean, it's, it's a great question. I, I just, so far, it ha- hasn't emerged a, as a problem, except when it's, um, we do have smoke evacuation requirements for, for in case of a fire. So sometimes we have to have spaces open that we didn't want them to have open. I mean, a lot of times we just have to accept what we're given and, and try to have the music compatible when you go from one room to the next. In terms of acoustics within a space, you know, generally you want to have some sort of absorption, something soft. About the only place we can consistently put in absorption is, it, absorption is in the ceiling, in that black zone where people don't look up to. When it comes to walls, our walls tend to be murals that are hard and painted. Um, so it almost becomes impossible to, to deal with that. So, you, you, you know, Sabine's loss is the total acoustic absorption of a room is a sum of the acoustic properties of each square foot. So basically, you try to sneak some absorption in wherever you can. Could even be under a bench or in a transitional space. Yeah, it's it's been, it's been very tricky. But the, the best thing is is to have people think about it from the very beginning. It's almost like a disability access. You can't add it to the end. You have to like acoustics. You have to like think about it right from the beginning. Yeah. No. Definitely. I mean, and it's it's such an important part of uh, you know again working within these spaces because if things are really reflective, you know, the sounds going to maybe sound like it's coming from a location you didn't intend it to come from. Um, and then, yeah, it's, it was interesting as you were saying, you know, that with the bleed between rooms, you had to make all of the music in a certain, you know, kind of a similar uh, key so that it wouldn't clash and that, you know, everything kind of sounds good no matter where you are in the space and that whatever bleed is there it kind of works. And that's, you know, I think there's a lot to that as far as just, again, designing the music and the compositions for the space that you're working with and thinking about how to, you know, work with those limitations, kind of what we were talking about a little bit before. Yeah, like interactive sounds, we would typically want them to be more percussive than like a a bed because there's this overall sound in the room that's it might be some sort of music or a, a drone or something. And so to have the interactive sounds pop, in order for the interactive sounds to be perceptible in this context, they have to be more percussive than, than drony, right? So what was one of your favorite experiences you've gotten to build? Oh, yeah. There have been so many fun things. Um, I think f- from a spatial audio point of view, in Las Vegas, there's a, an LED light tunnel that I built with uh, Roz, Rosfeld. Um it's um, a hallway that has LEDs on the left and the right side going up the wall and over the ceiling and back down the other wall. Uh, and the LEDs are doing all these elaborate patterns and it's a major Instagram selfie site, right? So we have uh, speakers in there and um, the idea was that I would do a sound design and have sounds moving in the space 
then I would send uh, either note on messages or XY panning to the light design and touch designer, and that would react and follow what the sound was doing. In the development process, I use a technique that I used a lot where I will build a spatializer in Max for Live using SPAT and then add a layer, uh, an extra stage of uh, a binaural mix down. Um, and I'll pl so I can place myself, so I can compose with headphones and put myself in different parts of the room and see how the mix is going. And it's, SPAT isn't really designed for you to, for the listener to move around. It's like you're in the center of the space and you can put these speakers around you and move, move the sound. But I kind of did a hack where instead of me moving in the space, I just virtually move all the speakers. So suddenly I'm like next to those speakers. So I, it's, it works out pretty well uh, as giving a good binaural um, idea of, what, of what's happening. Yeah, so I would compose in Ableton in headphones for these 16 speakers. Um, specific beats are things I could I could record or XY positions I could record as a a, a text file that would then be played uh, as OSC messages to lighting and so I don't know it's just such a fun space to have the sounds and lights move all around and have people enjoy it and have fun with it. The light tunnel, okay, the light tunnel in Las Vegas for anyone who who wants to go check it out. <laughs> the light tunnel. Hard to miss. I know. I had some friends uh, do some uh, rooms at the Denver uh, installation, and um, I didn't ask them which rooms were theirs before I went. And I was like, oh, I'll just figure it out. And then <laughs> I got there, and I was like, I was like, no, I'm not figuring this out. It's so big. There's so much happening. Yeah. I'm and really proud of Denver. <laughs> it's just, it's not only big, but I think we, the process was really good, and we got really proud of how that turned out mm. yeah it's a, a definitely a cool space there's a lot lot happening for sure do you have a favorite room there uh, i guess emia the the big swamp it's like a three or four story giant green space uh, ben wright did the spatial design in the room itself and there's all kinds of little organic and semi-organic sounds flying around um, in the middle of the room, there's a three-story structure called the Cosmohedron that has three rooms, and um, I did all the sound design for that. Uh, so Denver as a whole has about a thousand speakers. Um, mm, wow. In in EMEA, I think there's 64 um, or 120. I think it's 64, and the Cosmohedron has 64 as well, which is kind of the limit of Dante channels. So the the room in the mid floor um, designed by Emmanuel, the second story room is called Froghead Garden. Um, and it has some capacitive touch sensors, uh, a microphone that's kind of meant to be an ear. So you talk into it and then a process sound would leave and circle the room and then go out down the hallway. That was pretty fun to design. Also with all the lighting in sync with the sound and, what kind of speakers do you do you all use? All different kinds? <laughs> That's kind of tricky. Yeah. Well, you know, when you're touring, you can afford to use really fancy speakers like Meyer or DNB. Um, in general, we found uh, 
architectural speakers made by Sonance to be a really good balance of, of quality and, and expense. Um, so we'll have, um, there's a type called a surface mount, which is uh, a speaker with a, a yoke that you can attach to the wall and then kind of tilt the speaker up and down. Of course, that's really visible. So we do a kind of a, a themed entertainment trick of building a box into the scenery, putting that surface mount speaker in the box with some fiberglass and uh, then covering the screen with uh, paint or something to make it kind of disappear. It adds a really intense resonance to the speaker, but you just have to kind of deal with that. We also have Sonance uh, pendants, which you'll probably see in any kind of like airport or gym or something, these sort of suspended speakers from the ceiling. Um, and then we'll have various subwoofers. I, mean, I think our favorite ones are, are Community. Or Sonance makes a nice dual 10-inch that sounds pretty good. And then sometimes we use uh, like transducers that just vibrate a surface. So, for example, the, the, the exterior surface of Cosmohedron is uh, vacuum-formed plastic that we've attached to these uh, vibrators, so the whole surface kind of vibrates with sound. Yeah, pretty diverse collection of speakers, actually. And so talking about speakers, um, we just had a holoplot on not that long mm. ago. Um, I know. That's fun. <laughs> they, they, they are fun. I know you mm. mentioned that you got to play with their system a bit. Um, what, what, were your, what were your thoughts? Was it fun? Oh, yeah, yeah. A lot of fun. We're trying to figure out a way to, to use them in a future ex exhibition. Um, you know, the thing is, they're really designed for a large room. Like the MSG sphere is perfect for them. And so many of our rooms are small. Um, I mean, the first thing that made me really happy about them was they sound really good. They're just good sounding speakers. So that's, that's great. And they do kind of two tricks. One is a beam of sound. And one is like covering a, a particular surface, like a certain part of the floor. You could have an ev very even coverage. The, the beam of sound is so precise that you can reflect it off of a, like a piece of plywood. So you could have just a, a piece of plywood up in a corner, reflect the sound from there, and it sounds like you put a speaker up there. So that's a super efficient way of getting multiple speakers in effect. The problem with a beam is that pretty much, even though it does have one focal point, pretty much anyone in that path is gonna hear the beam. So if you want to have like a sound at a particular location in the room, the whole plot really works best if they're up, way up high and pointing down. But we were impressed, like how the, the beam could go through layers of uh, gauze so you could have a visual break but still hear the very precise sound. We tried different approaches. We ended up, they're really nice speakers, and they're coming out with a, a smaller, less expensive version soon that we are very interested in. And yeah, the beam forming technology kind of is just always really fascinating to me. And yeah, that ability to kind of like focus sound in very specific locations. Yeah, one of our newer employees, uh, Chloe Thompson, is is building a, a wave field array. We're going to see if we can build our own and and save money on. Because holoplots are kind of pricey, as they're nicey. Uh, most good speakers are. <laughs> yes, true, true. 
Yeah. So we've also had Spatial on, um, and I know you've also gotten to work with their technology too. What were your thoughts on that? Well, it's um, it's a really nice spatializing interface. It also uses a DBAP algorithm, I think. One of their nicest tricks is the ability to have media servers in different locations synchronized. For us, that's not so important because we do have all of our media servers in one room. We actually run physical speaker cable. And we use Spatial for an exhibit we did at South by Southwest. Uh, and, and it works just fine. For us, though, it's just not that useful because our spatialization system is so directly tied to Ableton Live and to the music itself. You know, Spatial's programming is kind of like uh, the way a lighting board programs. It's all these timelines, which works great if you're doing a, a theme park ride, but it's not so good for interactive stuff or generative stuff where you never know what the music is going to be. Um, so it was, it was very interesting working with them and seeing them develop this product, but really the fact that we can do this as a plug-in and automate it and have the automation follow the music so perfectly, we just can't, we just can't use it. I think that's always been my challenge in general with tools. It's kind of like, I'm like, this is really cool and I'm really excited this, that this exists, but I feel like I'm still, it's like a bunch of steps ahead <laughs> of the tools. And I'm like, I keep going back to Max at the end of the day. I'm just like, I'm like, oh, like I can do so much, so much in this space that you just can't do. And, you know, and you can be way, you know, so, so creative and just kind of come up with like, oh, I want to do this random thing and you can just build it and then you can make it happen. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what I tell people is like, if you're going to do some audio processing that is already done by Pro Tools or something, just use Pro Tools. But if you come up with some really strange idea that no one else does, build it in Max. Yeah, it really, it really gives you that space to just explore and be creative and do any really anything and everything your your brain can imagine for the most part. Yeah. Awesome. So thank you so much for just kind of sharing all of this knowledge with us, Les, and kind of all of your experience of working with this. Um, what do you believe lies ahead for spatial audio technology and how do you think that it can help create and empower immersive productions in your industry? Oh my goodness. Well, that's a big question. Uh, there are a lot of people in that space playing with things. Definitely wave field synthesis is, is huge and affecting every aspect of, of speaker design. And in terms of more personal design, like headphones or, um, AirPods, you know, the fact that we can get the head tracking data is really cool. So I think in terms of XR, being able to use that is critical. We tried, we, we had a work group to, do, to come up with um, kind of like previs for future exhibitions. And that was one weak point we found was getting the head tracking data. You kind of have to work with a specific headset and authoring software like let's say unity and then get the head tracking data and send it via osc to let's say ableton but then you're wearing you know a but the vr headsets don't have great audio quality so there you are wearing a headset and a pair of headphones and it gets kind of awkward 
I think one area I'd like to see develop more is uh, being able to render things like walls in, in either VR or uh, previous VR. So for example, when we use the DBAP algorithm to pan uh, a sound and pre-visualize it in space, we can't really account for the fact that there are walls reflecting or obscuring sources or speakers pointed in different directions. So it'd be great to have more detail uh, in that. And you know, maybe someone will come up with a good solution for doing rear sound, a sound coming from the rear in a, in a theater. I think that problem hasn't been solved yet. More problems than solutions. Well, that's, that's what keeps us entertained and interested, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I find most of the people that work in this space are people that like to solve problems. So, mm, mm-hmm. What is the best way to find out more about yourself and the work you do? Oh, well, um, I have a website, lessstuck.com, and I try to keep that up to date. And you could, you know... Another thing we haven't talked about is I've written a lot of music for, for dance. On my website, you'll hear a lot of music I've written for dance. I recently made some music for A Dancing Robot by Jonathan Backrack, and also wrote some music for David Sedaris's most recent uh, audiobook. So I really love making music that supports other art forms. But um, I think I'll stick with Meow Wolf for a while. I'm enjoying it and see what other things I can come up with. Well, stay tuned for that. Yeah, we can post some links to Meow Wolf too in the uh, the show notes for anyone who does not know what Meow Wolf is and would like to visit. Where where are the locations again? The original one is in Santa Fe, and that was kind of built with zero budget, so it's really kind of charming. In one of the tech closets, there's literally a half dozen raspberry pies just kind of Velcroed to the wall, and that's, that's running video and stuff. The next major exhibit was in Las Vegas at Area 15. Um, and then the, the, the biggest one so far is in Denver in a purpose-built building. Um, and we're building two exhibits in Texas right now, uh, one near Dallas and coming up in Houston soon. I think the Houston one is going to be really fun. Awesome. For Soundies, yeah. Exciting. Um. All right, so we have one question we always ask our guests. Uh-oh. Um, but what piece of advice do you have for anyone interested in joining the industry? Hmm. Yeah, I, I think it's, I mean, obviously you have to keep learning and studying new things. I think it's really important to listen very carefully. I know that sounds kind of obvious, but um, sound is such a subtle art it's easy to be distracted by what you think you're hearing as opposed to what you're actually hearing. I think one of the greatest skills you could have as a composer or sound designer is like you walk into the theater and you listen. And even though you've heard that music a hundred times to be able to listen to it with fresh ears, you kind of put yourself in that space where you're just, or let's say you've, you've worked really hard on some sort of spatialization algorithm and to forget all that work and just listen to it. is is the algorithm working or not? Again, like just because you pan something in the center doesn't mean it's actually going to be in the center. Like, listen, what is what is actually happening to that sound? So I think, yeah, that's the ability to really assess, 
technology and your own work with some distance and uh, soliciting really good feedback from people about is it is it really working? I bet we'll get you far. Allowing space. Yeah. A little space is good. And cultivating criticism. That was one of the great things I learned living in Europe is people will tell you exactly what they think. I mean, you could be celebrating a big premiere and feeling happy and everything, and some random person will walk up and say, I didn't like your piece because of this, this, and this. And It's harsh, but it's so incredibly healthy. Give criticism in a positive way and to accept it. And even someone who tells you something and you realize, well, they don't really know what they're talking about. For some reason, they're saying something because they had that experience. So there's there's definitely a value to whatever they're saying, even though it's not exactly what, maybe it's not exactly technically right, but there's a reason that they think the sex is not loud enough or something like that. I don't know. Well, Les, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us and just sharing everything that you've shared um, during this time. Um, It was a joy having you on. Uh, Thanks, Monica. And next time we hang out in Albuquerque, I won't tell you anything about me at all. You already know everything, so. (laughs) I've got the whole backstory now, so I I, I don't need to ask you any more questions. That's right. (laughs) Awesome. Well, yes, thank you so much, Les. and yeah, well, I'll, I'll, I'll probably try to see you soon. It's a deal. In person, physical. Grab a beer somewhere. <laughs> Alrighty. If you enjoy the podcast and would like to show your support, please consider becoming a Patreon. Not only are you supporting us, but you will also get special access to bonus content and much more. Find out more on our official Patreon page, www.patreon.com slash immersive audio podcast. You've been listening to the Immersive Audio Podcast, hosted by Oliver Cadell and Monica Bowles. This episode was produced by Oliver Cadell and Emma Reese and included music by Rhythm Scott. Got an idea for an episode or want to comment on something we've discussed recently? Drop us an email at podcast at 1618digital.com or find us on Twitter at iAudioPodcast. If you've enjoyed our show, head to our page on iTunes and leave us a review and rating. It really helps us out. Visit immersiveaudiopodcast.com to access show notes and other episodes and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance, featuring a hand-picked selection of the very best podcasts about sound. Be sure to hear the latest episodes from our friends in the community at audiopodcast.org.